recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 25. We've hit the quarter century mark of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm's online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. We are on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and the account name is PR Law Podcast, all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. And you subscribe to us on YouTube or SoundCloud as well, and we will take your questions on social media. Just uh, use the hashtag PRLawPod, and we'll answer it on a future show. It's been a crazy week, you and what's going on on your side of the world? Well, first of all, I like that. The quarter century mark. Kind of a big deal. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's great. That's great. Let's... Uh... <laughs> Let's go bang out another 25. <laughs> yeah, it's a shocking amount of work, actually, as I was going through. Like, each of these are shows are planned out. They're about an hour long, and they they involve a lot of research and things like that. It's uh, kind of amazing we've, we've made it this far this fast, I guess, is maybe part of the surprising part of it. Yeah, you know, and I think that's an important point. I had uh, I had a friend ask me, listen to the show for the first time, and um, he, he liked it, and that's always encouraging and nice to hear. But, uh, yeah, I said the same thing. I said, you know, it takes it actually takes a lot of time. We we do put in a, a lot of work. We do a lot of prep. Um, you know, we're we're not just showing it up, showing up and and winging it. And I think that's kind of important for people to know <laughs> um, that we, we we are trying and we want to make the show better and grow the audience and, and all that jazz. Right. Yeah, for sure. And this one's different because uh, I don't know if it sounds different. Maybe it does a little bit, but it's morning in Hong Kong at the moment. Normally, we record these uh, Sunday evening in Hong Kong, Sunday morning in Toronto. Uh, but we're doing this Monday morning in Hong Kong, so it's Sunday evening in Toronto. So Ewan gets a bit of an evening recording session tonight. That's right. Well, and I've been dreaming about this for yeah. This is uh, what you wanted. Five episodes. That's right. <laughs> Finally, so did normally it. I'm sitting drinking my my rather glorious cup of coffee, and uh, instead, Cameron, I've I've swapped it out for a rather glorious little uh, little glass of of whiskey. So yeah, kind perfect. of a kind of a nice change. Yeah, no kidding, and. Uh, the coffee machine is broken here, so I've I'm awaiting my Starbucks order. It should you you'll hear the doorbell ring in a few minutes? I think uh, in the back. No, I don't think we can do that here. You might need to provide some some context. Starbucks to the door. Well, I, I mean, I think you've got DoorDash and things like that. Well, in the U.S. has DoorDash anyway, but this is just through Food Panda, which is sort of it's a global company. Uh, but there's 300, 400 restaurants on there probably at any given time that you can order from. So it's uh, definitely a big selection. Out of all of those 400, I picked Starbucks, which is a, uh, it's a whole other discussion. Um, you know, Ewan, this week was a tough one, too. I, I, there, I mean, there was a lot of news going on. I see just about an hour before we started recording TikTok. Uh, as there's been a, a judge has issued an injunction in the TikTok ban, so it's going to be available in the U.S. Um, but aside from that, it's really uh, President Trump. Uh, he made several remarks this week about not uh, not following the will of the people or the election results on election night. Um, he's 
put a lot of doubt into sort of mail-in ballots uh, and things like that. And of course, this is a year of a pandemic where, you know, there could be a lot more mail-in ballots than usual um, as a result of that. And uh, I think it's it's really sort of cast a bit of a dark shadow on the election now. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody, you know, you and I have talked about this before, that that hyperbole that's been surrounding this election of, oh, this is the most important election ever. And of course, you could point to any number of elections where the same thing was said. You know, I recall um, the the re-election campaign for George W. Bush and and the Democrats were saying something similar. Um, I'm sure if we went back further, we could come up with any number of examples of this is the most important Mm -hmm. election. But, you know, whether this is the most important election ever or not, it certainly it just feels like a bizarro Twilight Zone episode because it's all going on. Um, in the wake of this crazy pandemic and you can't really separate it from the election. And of course, you know, I mean, the the death count in the U.S., it's a huge election issue. Um, Trump's reaction to and response to COVID is a huge election issue. So you can't you can't separate the two. But it's just a it just strikes me as such a bizarro kind of backdrop that it's difficult to imagine that we will ever see another election quite like this one in our lifetime. I, I do think Trump is very good at just injecting just enough doubt into something. And so, I mean, he's not coming out and saying that this is going to happen or that all of these votes will be um uh, fraudulent, but he's just putting some doubt in people's minds and he's preparing them. So if something comes up in a way that he, he doesn't like, um, he's already sort of laid the laid the foundation to to make that kind of argument. Um, and it's it's really detrimental to the democracy in the United States. I never thought that we would be in a situation like this where, you know, it's almost as if we need sort of U.N. monitors coming in to uh, to make sure the election results or the election is held fairly. Um, but that's that's the that's the place we're at these in 2020. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, what's happening, Ewan? Yeah, so I don't know if you caught this article earlier in the week, Cam. It was in The Verge. It's called Mark in the Middle by uh, Casey Newton. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really good long-form piece sort of uh, examining the internal workings of Facebook. It includes uh, a number of the leaked sound bites uh, of Mark Zuckerberg that were, you know, recorded by employees and and ultimately leaked to the press. And, you know, I would encourage anyone to sort of take some time and sit down and go through this article. But as an employment lawyer reading it, it, uh, I mean, there's just, there's so much, there's so much to unpack here in terms of the employer's perspective and the employee's perspective. So I kind of just wanted to talk about, talk about some of that stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the big thing that sort of was the catalyst here, and I think we've talked about this before on the show, Cam, was um, President's, President Trump's post following the, uh, the death of, of George mm-hmm. Floyd. And that was, you know, the, that, that when the looting starts, the shooting starts soundbite. And, of course, Mark Zuckerberg refused to, to pull it down. Um, and a number of employees weren't 
particularly happy about that as as and context one. twitter did mark that as yeah. i think aggressive or violent language and it was harder to view on twitter so facebook's reaction is sort of also in contrast to twitter's reaction which was quite different yeah and and the the first thing that sort of jumped out at me cam was this i this sort of notion that you come across in in corporate governance that idea of of tone from the top Right. And this is something that as employment lawyers, we often look at when we're when we're doing work for employers, particularly larger corporate employers and ensuring that the message from the top is representative of a what what the company um, markets and advertises itself as. But that that message is sort of consistent from the top of the ranks on down. And mm-hmm. doing everything you can to try and ensure that there is consistency in that message. And you can do that a number of ways, right? I mean, you can have sort of routine check-ins with your employees to make sure they're on side. You can develop uh, good workplace policies and procedure manuals that sort of reflect um, those particular ideals and what's permitted and what isn't permitted. But the key here, Cam, is that the message needs to be consistent. And that was one of the things that struck me in reading this article that, you know, they had a, um, a soundbite from Sheryl Sandberg, the company's COO, um, talking about how Facebook needs to be a neutral platform. And then later that same day, uh, there was a quote from the, the director of public policy for trust and safety at Facebook. And, and he said that, well, I don't think we're necessarily neutral. So again, you know, you've got competing messages that you're putting forth to your employees that's readily accessible to all the, the employees in the company. And that's inconsistent. That's the exact opposite of, of what needs to happen. That message needs to be consistent. You have to set that tone from the top. And it has to be reflected in good workplace policy that all of the employees are familiar with. You know, I have said this before. Uh, I mean, I followed Mark Zuckerberg's career, obviously, uh, as Facebook has grown, as he founded it, and it has grown over over the years. And obviously, in 2016, it feels like, you know, there was still a belief that technology was something good and that we should continue marching forward with technology um, because of its benefits. And that all seemed to come crashing down in 2016 with the um, Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, and what's happened really since then. And it really seems to me that Mark Zuckerberg is in over his head on this. I've heard him speak, um, you know, at Congress. I've heard him take questions in, in in news conferences and then even with his own staff. I don't think he fully understands the impact that Facebook is having. And I, I would put Sheryl Sandberg in that same category. And I think they, they got a lot of credit, especially Sheryl Sandberg, for, for bringing the company from sort of a small startup to the global behemoth that it is today. Um, but I'm not sure that they understand the significance of what's going on. And these messages that are allowed to stay on Facebook the damage that they're doing, the violence that they are causing, and even in some areas, deaths as a result of this, especially in a place like like Myanmar. Now, I've gone a little bit off the, off the beaten track here on this on this tangent, <laughs> um, but you're right. I, there is inconsistency in their messaging, and it, it comes from different leaders at the company, as you mentioned. But it also comes publicly. Their 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 message is inconsistent, and that's bad from a PR perspective too. Yeah, well, and I think you know you get back to this very simple notion of no company can be all things to all people, right? You have to sort of decide 
who you are, what you are, and and how you're going to to market and build your company. And that's what employees see. So when employees are start are, are effectively getting inconsistent messages, it means that their behavior very quickly becomes inconsistent. And again, this goes back to that sort of corporate governance a notion of of the tone from the top that you know an employee needs to be able to look up the ranks and get some sense that there's a uniform message that there's consistency that you know we're all part of you know one larger product that's trying to be productive a machine that's trying to move things out the door um and that 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 message if it's going to change that it's changing because of of some very deliberate reason within the company and again that if you're if you're to try and and avoid particular behavior among your employees then reflect it in workplace policy and procedure manuals you have to you have to do that and it has to sort of be message that's that's consistent that's conveyed that's put to your employees you know so, so ensure that your policy and procedure manuals are provided to employees when you hire them and provide them with their employment agreements they should effectively be presented and executed at the same time so you don't have any employees arguing that well oh i didn't know that i didn't know that this is part of the the company or i didn't know that this was one of the company's policies the idea being that they're presented with them right from from the from the start right out of the gate of the employer employee relationship and that everybody is on the same page yeah and i want to fill in the the listeners a little bit about this article too because i mean one of the big concerns at facebook now is that i mean zuckerberg and president trump clearly have um a relationship um they've spoken many times and you know facebook is the one social network that is not uh, labeling Trump statements in a negative way or pulling them down or anything like that. Um, and so there has been a lot of coverage on the fact that it looks like these two may be either working together or Facebook's kind of turned a blind eye to what, what the president has been posting. Um, obviously, a lot of staff inside Facebook um, are not okay with this. They feel quite strongly about, you know, whether violence is, is on the platform or, um, you know, things like disinformation and things like that. And so there's naturally going to be a conflict here between between the staff and the direction that the company is kind of choosing to take. And I guess my question, Ewan, is do, do the staff have any rights in this whatsoever? Because ultimately Zuckerberg controls the company. Well, sure. I mean, you know, employees are are well within their rights to sort of speak up on these issues as employees have done. Now, will that result in, in repercussion? Um, I mean, perhaps. Again, you know, outside of, uh, you know, some sort of discriminatory reason for an employee speaking up and, and perhaps being disciplined accordingly. Um, you know, an employer has the right to to terminate an employee on a without cause basis in most situations. So, again, I'm you know this is this is another reason why it's important that everybody gets on the same page and that employers are not effectively putting out messages on behalf of the company that they're effectively only paying lip service to. And we've talked about this before as well in the sort of the wake of. Black Lives Matters edicts that companies have made and yet 
that's not reflective of the internal uh, workings of of the business or of the company. So yeah, can employees step up and and complain? Sure. And I think in a large company, particularly a large publicly traded company, that kind of stuff is is healthy. Um, but it doesn't mean that employees effectively can say whatever they want because of course they can't. And that you know an employer has a has a fair amount of leeway and discretion in terms of disciplining and and possibly terminating employees for these things. So, I mean, I do find this um, kind of a fascinating case study uh, only because, I mean, obviously where, where Facebook is in San Francisco is obviously an extremely liberal place. And the technology industry in general is has been known as being very, very democratic, very, very liberal in, in thinking. Uh, but then you have sort of Zuckerberg working with 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 President Trump on some of these things. And there, there were articles that appeared last week that talked about, you know, even if TikTok is banned, the company this benefits the most is Facebook because Facebook has basically bought any other social network early on that appeared to be a competitor uh, of Facebook, you know, WhatsApp and Instagram and others. Um, but here we are. And, you know, Facebook would stand to benefit tremendously with, with, with president Trump sort of picking a fight with, with TikTok. Um, so there's definitely a link between those two in some way. But you and back to the the question sort of internally again, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who are working in organizations where they do disagree with the um, the direction of the company, the direction of leadership, the tone that leadership is taking. It seems to me that if this is if this is the head of the company and he's sort of entrenched as Zuckerberg is with sort of the dual class shares that Facebook has, he's not going anywhere. Um, that employees have little choice. Like they can either, they can, they can raise it. You're right. There could be, there could be some sort of disciplinary action taken against them for raising it, which is another question, or they can just move on because this is not the company that, that they thought it was or not the company that they want to put their name to. Is that really sort of the only choices available? Well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah. You know, you sort of have, I would say there's kind of one of three choices, right? You can kind of speak up and and try and create some change internally in the company, whether or not that's actually going to happen, obviously, is um, is is a subject of debate. You can keep your mouth shut, uh, put your head down and just do your work. Or three, yeah, to your point, you you quit and you go and work somewhere else because you've made the determination that you just don't agree with with the company's direction and and how they deal with things. That's really, I mean, but really, that's those are your options. And I mean, from the employer's perspective, you know, if they don't like the way that the employees are speaking publicly about the company, well, then yeah, I mean, they can they can certainly. Um, alter workplace policies to ensure that employees are restricted from speaking publicly about the company in any sort of defamatory um, or disparaging fashion. Um, they can create policies that would prevent uh, employees from from trying to surreptitiously record management, right? I mean, and let's, let's, let's be honest. That's how all these leaks came to be in the first place was, right. you know, it was an employee on a call who recorded it and, and, and effectively leaked the call. And, you know, I get the, I get asked this question a lot. 
um, you know, if I'm going into a meeting with my employer and, and, you know, they're consistently abusive or, um, or, you know, they harass or discriminate against me in some way, can I record that conversation? And the answer, generally speaking, is yes, you can. You can record that conversation unless there's something contemplated in a, in an employment agreement or, you know, in a workplace policy or procedure manual that says that you can't. So, you know, that's another option Facebook could do. They could crack down. But, of course, we're not talking about some tiny little rinky-dink enterprise here. And, um, as, I mean, I think we can safely assume that if the company did try and crack down on some of this behavior, it wouldn't be long before we were reading articles about that. And, you know, what, what impact is that going to have on the company, on its ability to attract good employees down the road, on the share price? Um, I mean, these are all all concerns that Facebook would have to address. I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I will say, I mean, following the company uh, over all of these years, um, I don't know if I've ever seen them exercise good judgment. <laughs> So I, I fully sort of expect these problems to continue. Um, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is qualified to be in the role that he's in with Facebook. I think Sheryl Sandberg has been a bit of a disaster uh, as well in her role. And um, I, I, I definitely understand why people would not want to work for that company. Um, it's caused a lot of harm, a lot of harm. And it seems like the leadership group is either unaware or it doesn't really care um, about the harm that has been caused. So uh, it's a, it's in a serious situation. Um, anything else on this to add you and before we, uh, before we move on? No, I mean, other than, you know, if I, if I was to cut Zuckerberg at least a little bit of slack, I, I imagine it would be very, very, very difficult to sort of keep control of all of these issues when you're dealing with a company that grows at the exponential rate that Facebook has grown. Um, you know, rapid expansion is not really a good environment for ensuring stability and consistency of, of, you know, a top down kind of message. So those are certainly things that large companies have to consider when they're, when they're looking to grow. And good news, Ewan, my, my, my lattes here. Show your support to the PR and law podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. Okay, I came across an article this week written by Mary York, uh, and she's a a PR expert uh, with more than 15 years of experience, and she's written an article in Forbes taking a look at steering a cybersecurity PR crisis in 2020, Um, because obviously cybersecurity threats are quite serious, and uh, these breaches are quite... Um, widespread, and she's sort of got some advice on on what companies should do in, in managing something like this. You and have you come across this issue sort of in your in your in your legal work with employers? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, issues of cybersecurity are, I, my gosh, I mean they're they're at the forefront of of large companies nowadays and smaller companies, and it's the smaller companies where it's 
this is a real issue, right? That they haven't necessarily turned their minds to a lot of these, these concerns. Um, and they're, they're, they're kind of ripe for, for things going sideways. Yeah. And I kind of want to explain this a little bit because um, I think we, we should be clear. I mean, anytime you are in a checkout line, whether it's online or off, if you're at Target or you're at Safeway or whatever it might be, and you pay using a credit card, then the company has your name and your credit card number and the time and the groceries that you purchased saved in a database somewhere. And that is just sort of regular procedure um, at a lot of places to see who's buying what. And, you know, it helps inform marketing plans and, and various other things. The problem is um, a lot of these companies are not technology companies per se, and so maybe they do not have the necessary firewalls and protections around this data, and then there is often a breach. And we've seen this with Target as one, but there's been many of them where hackers have gotten in and, and, and gotten the credit card information of a number of customers. So this is a huge risk for uh, retail businesses right now. It's also one of the catalysts of some of this moving to the cloud, moving off-premises into sort of giant cloud storage with Microsoft or Amazon. But from a customer's point of view, I mean, this is where, you know, using cash makes sense or using um, an encrypted service like Apple Pay or something along those lines makes sense because it, it uses a token and the, and the company will never see your credit card number or your name. But it gets a... a, a Sorry, so can I just want to interrupt? What, what do you mean when you say a, a token? <laughs> what, so what happens is, I mean, this is a little bit technical, but if you, if you go through a credit card, right? Like if you pass a Safeway clerk your credit card, they'll swipe it or they'll put the pin into the machine. And then they've got your, your credit card number and your name and your expiry date, right? If you use Apple Pay, it has to basically tell the store that you have the money to cover what you've just paid without giving them the information for them to look it up themselves. So it's slightly different. So what happens is, is on the phone, it does a calculation or on your watch or whatever, your iPad or whatever it might be. It does a calculation. It, it gets the amount being charged. And from your own device, it will check with your credit card company that it's okay. If it is okay, it creates a token, a virtual token, that is then transferred through NFC to the shop to okay the sale. So they don't, uh, they don't get, yeah, okay. they don't get your, your credit card information. So, I mean, I do recommend these sorts of technologies when buying things now. Um, not that I'm alarmist about just using credit card regularly. I do still use credit card regularly as well, but anytime you have an option, uh, it's just good to, to try and be a little bit more secure. But anyway, these sorts of security breaches are obviously becoming, um, a, a big problem and they're really on the increase too. So, um, I mean, just in 2019 alone, uh, cases of cybersecurity data breaches were up 284% over the year before. Wow. And wow. this year, they're already up way beyond that uh, in 2020. Uh, so it's it's obviously something that's growing really, really quickly. Um, and COVID-19 has been a part of that um, because obviously there's a lot of uh, government programs, um, you know, to help people to, to send them uh, some, some cash or to stimulate the economy. Um, and hackers obviously are aware of this and looking for sort of ways in on that as well. Um, and these breaches obviously do a lot of harm because, um, you know, a lot of people have said if if there's a breach like this, they, they don't trust that company. And we've talked on this show, Ewan, about on the legal and the PR side, trust is so fundamental 
um, to a lot of how companies operate with their staff and with their customers and with other stakeholders as well. Um, so yeah, absolutely, especially when their money's involved, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, there was a, a survey done in 2018 uh, by a company called Ping Identity, and it showed that 78% would no longer engage with a company online if, if their information was stolen. And I think that that, that makes uh, absolute sense. So, uh, I mean, what, what, what do you do if this happens? And I think when we're looking at it from a PR perspective, uh, first... From a business perspective, I do think PR teams can ask questions about this at their company um, at the very beginning. So even though it's not your area and even though sort of the IT and the sales procedures sit somewhere else, if you identify a PR, a potential PR problem, it's within your rights to raise that question and say, you know, this is something that's going on with other companies in the world um, you know, this is something that's causing some companies great harm. What what do we have? We want to put together some some statements or some uh, plans that deal with this issue if it came to pass. So we want to know what the setup is so we can explain it clearly to stakeholders. And I think that you're well within your right to do that. And it's a good thing to do. Well, yeah. And I mean, that would be my question to you is, I mean, how the heck do you do that such that you convey the message in a clear and transparent way to, to a consumer, to a layman who's not necessarily going to know what a, a token is or what, you know, gazillion and one bit encryption means um, or, or any other of these very highly sort of technical terms. Well, I think, uh, so there's two parts to that, right? I mean, if you're, if you're contacting your own internal sales or IT teams, they should know the, the, the technology around it because it's in their department. If they don't, then it's, then, then it's a real big concern um, because, because they should. But then, which is sort of point two, you know, that you're going ahead with is sort of explaining it to the public. I mean, when, when something like this happens, you, you want to, the first priority here is to provide the information, all of the information that you have on hand. And I think we've seen, um, actually, Facebook has been such a bad example of this. Sorry to pick on Facebook so much today. But Facebook will often say there has been a breach and it looks like 20 million records may have been may have been visible to a certain group. And then it goes to 300 million and then 500 million and they keep increasing it. And that's obviously something that you, you don't want to do. Um, it does kind of make sense because that first story is the one that's going to get the most attention. And sometimes if you have a lower number there, it's not... A higher number later doesn't get the same amount of attention as that initial number, but I still think that's kind of dishonest uh, PR and a little bit sneaky. Um, so the thing you want to do is absolutely tell customers what's happened, and then you want to tell them personally what's happened. So a good example of this was with Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong a couple of years ago. Um, they did announce to the media uh, right away that this occurred and that over a six-month period, you know, it looked like a lot of their customers' data was stolen. Um, and I received an email on the same day breaking down exactly what happened, what information they might have. And then the other key one, Ewan, is really what action can you take then? Like, knowing that they have my information, what should I do next? And oftentimes that is logging in, you, you know, creating a new password is often the the easiest one. Um, but if someone has your credit card number, I mean, you, you do have to consider thinking about, uh, you know, getting a new credit card from that bank um, because it would come with a new number. Again, that's a little bit extreme because if there's fraudulent activity, oftentimes you can identify that quite quickly. Um, but these are the things that you would have to consider. 
Wow. Yeah. The, I mean, that's just, it's a lot. And it's, you know, the reason why this is also really, really tricky for businesses and companies to, to deal with is that most employers, they're not equipped, um, to even comprehend this kind of, these kinds of issues and this kind of language, right? They effectively will have an IT group and it, there's sort of this idea of, well, no, no, that's just sort of, that's the IT world. We'll let IT deal with that. You can speak with IT about that. And there seems to be a disconnect. And again, you, you know, often see this with smaller companies where, you know, executives or management have a complete disconnect from what's going on in their IT department. And they don't understand that these kinds of things are integral to the success and, and sort of healthy future of, of their businesses. And they need to be involved in those discussions rather than just trying to punt them off to, to someone else. Yeah. Or you need to have somebody in there that does understand it well and can explain it to you and you trust. Because um, I think it's reasonable for people not to know the ins and outs of their IT team, but I do think they need to have some idea of how they are processing information, where information is being stored. I mean, we're seeing this now even with the TikTok and the WeChat um, battles in the United States. I mean, a lot of it is around where is data stored. And up until now, there's been no strong laws about this, but they are coming on the books in various places. China is one country that does have really strict laws about this. If you have um, information, if you're providing a service to Chinese citizens online and you're collecting their data, you must have a server inside mainland China and it must be stored there. And if you don't do that, then you cannot do business in China. Um, and we're starting to see that a little bit with the US wanting to go down sort of a, a similar path. So, I mean, not that um, the physical location of data matters that much because i mean we're 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 in an interconnected world where i mean no matter where my cloud storage is i can access it if it's in singapore or if it's in antarctica you know like you can you can get it without actually physically being there um, but this is something that's coming up a lot more but then secondly you and the one thing i haven't mentioned yet is there are now um laws around this and there are regulations around this especially in terms of a a, a data breach um and issues around personal identifiable data. And I think the other thing is it's really important for companies to understand what those laws are in the areas or in the jurisdictions in which they do business. Because oftentimes if something like this happens, you, you're, you're obligated to take certain actions within a certain period of time. And so you need to be aware of this in advance. And this is why this is another one of these sort of crisis plans that you really do want to do in advance. Because, I mean, it makes sense anytime to try and think ahead of various crises that could happen. But this one has really significant legal implications. And so it's important to know what those are. Well, yeah. And the governing jurisdictions, right? I mean, this is a, this is a huge issue as well. If you're storing your data, I mean, um, in another country, and you've drafted or you've you've executed an agreement with that particular cloud storage company, the likelihood that they're going to say, and hey, if you have any legal issues, no problem. We'll come to wherever you are and you can sue us locally. Um, that's that's not how it works, right? You have to go inevitably to wherever they are um, and abide by the governing legislation of wherever that company is based or wherever that company has decided um, it wants to be based. That's 
that can be a huge problem for a company because, of course, you're not necessarily going to be familiar with the governing law there. Um, and that can be a problem for any of your customers who ultimately have their own personal data stored on that company's servers because they're, you know, through all, effectively as a third party, have agreed to have their, their data stored Um elsewhere. And, you know, the ability to retrieve that could be very, very difficult down the road. One thing important to note here, which uh, is in the article uh, who I mentioned, um, or what I mentioned was written by Mary York, who's a a PR expert. This is in Forbes, and I will put a link in the show notes. One interesting point that she makes in here too is, if you have a data breach, or if you have some kind of cybersecurity incident, and data is not taken, then it may not be necessary to alarm your customers and your staff either. You do need to take a look at exactly what was accessed and when and for how long and what are the implications of that. Um, because there are data breaches that happen where it appears that nothing has been taken or it was almost a challenge to break in for the hacker, but they don't actually do anything. Um, and this this is not uncommon. Um, and then you have to really take a look at what should we say then. Um, and it's never with a um, uh, with a with the mind of trying to hide information. But you also don't want to you know alarm people if if their data was not affected and is still safe. Um, so these are the sorts well, of decisions you have to go through. Well, yeah, I mean, and but how how do you convey that message? How do you say, oh, by the way, we think that your your data um, may have been taken, but don't worry. It's, it's, it's okay. Um, I mean, how do you sort of, um, blunt that, that, that blow, so to speak. Once you tell users that their data has been taken. Yeah. 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 Um, this is not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. This is, this is an organization basically telling its own loyal customers that it has let them down in a pretty profound way. Um, and it has, um, abused the trust that was put in them. And I think that that's a, that's a serious thing for a company to do. But in these cases, always on the PR side, it's like you're not going to convince your customer that you're fantastic in the area of data security. There's nothing you can say to turn this into a giant positive, which is why the honesty really is the best way. And the information and being as transparent as possible is really the best way to do this because you've already let your customer down once by having this happen. The least you can do is, is be frank with them about what has happened and what they can do about it. So like I said, Cathay Pacific sent that, that email, which was quite direct. It talked about who or when the breach happened, what information was available, what may have been taken, the fact that my name and my information was in that database. It also told me what information of mine was in there. So my, my, email address and my password to log into Cathay's website uh, and my Asia Miles number. I mean, all of this was in that database that they could take. And then they suggested that I, you know, change my password and, and, and potentially change credit cards. Um, so, yeah, that's really awful to have to say that to your customers. But at the same time, you do have to say it. This is one of those times where you have to do it uh, because the fallout, if you don't, if you either delay or if you try and downplay it, you're risking leaks coming out drip by drip over time with some of this damage. And it's going to make the situation 10 or a hundred times worse uh, than if you just came out at the beginning. Do you feel like 
a lot of consumers, though, Cam, are becoming almost desensitized to these messages. I mean, this has just become so commonplace that a company that you, you know, whose services you use online is sending you an email saying, hey, we may have, your data may be compromised or, um, you know, you may have to change some passwords or something like that. It just seems to be so common now. Um, do you think that consumers are starting to just get desensitized and, and thinking that, well, this is just clearly a, you know, sort of an everyday part of being a consumer in a, in, in kind of a virtual world? So um, I'm stepping a little out of a PR role on this one into more of a personal role. But I, I, I do think you're correct. I think people are desensitized to it. I think it's happened enough times, especially when you look at something like Equifax, um, you know, the, the credit agency in the U.S., um, that was hacked a couple of years ago and, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans had their, their, their data known, um, or 150 million, I think, uh, which is huge. I mean, it's half, almost half the country. Um, so yeah, I think people are desensitized to it, but it worries me because it's so important. Your information, it's not just about the fact that you purchased peanut butter at Target on this day. It's that your your habits and your routines can say so much about you and help unlock other parts of your life. So, for instance, if you if you know part of your your relationships with people in your family are known, I mean, hackers know that you often use your spouse or your dog or your kids as passwords for apps or for other online services. And so that information can be quite useful. So even something that seems benign at first might have some value. And uh, personally speaking, it, this is something that I'm concerned about all of the time. Um, and so I'm using an email provider that allows me an unlimited number of aliases. So for instance, for Facebook, I'll have an email address only used for me to log on to Facebook. And that means Facebook cannot track me. That's the email address that they have. And so they look around the internet to go, let's see what else Cam is doing. And it does that by email address. So you, and in your case, with your email or anyone's, it will take your Facebook email address, which for most people is their normal email address, and then run it through all kinds of searches and algorithms and go, oh, he uses this email address over here and over here and over here. And they can pull all that data together and then follow you. And this is happening to everyone, basically. And so one way around that is, yeah, to use different aliases for different emails. But when you start getting into that, that's a little bit technical, does require a little bit of thought to do it in an easy way. And I think people aren't really predisposed to spending time on this sort of thing, thinking about it or actually taking action. And it's unfortunate because I think the, the fallout is, is quite substantial. Yeah, so, I mean, well, so to, to that point, do you feel like PR, PR guys in this domain are effectively um, just and and PR women, excuse me, PR people um, are fighting an uphill battle in this regard. That really, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You have to convey the message to the consumer that um, yes, there may have been a data breach, but I mean, it really just sounds like most consumers aren't taking this stuff particularly seriously at the best of times, anyway. So, how do you sort of craft a message? Um, when you know that most people effectively aren't listening to it anyway. Well, this is boiled down to um, almost anything in PR. You cannot guarantee an outcome. You cannot guarantee that your audience will listen to you or believe you or take action based on what you're saying. Um, that goes beyond what what you're capable of guaranteeing. What you're doing is trying to 
use words and use your actions to to compel some sort of action or understanding. Um, but whether or not they do it is really beyond the scope and the remit of a PR person, or I would say a lawyer maybe too, potentially, because you can come to somebody and say, this is what happened, this is the threat, this is what we think you should do, and this is how we think you should protect yourself, um, but you can't actually make them do it. And that's where the ball really sort of is in the hands of the people who are out there shopping and out there um, buying things online and taking actions online and signing up for services they have to have some kind of awareness of what's happening and interest in what's happening um, and then action. And if they don't, it's really unfortunate. There, there is nobody out there kind of looking after them. You know, you hope that the, these companies that are taking your data are managing it prudently. But if you take a look at all the different, you know, magazines or newspapers or services or online chat programs or whatever it might be, a number of companies have your information and not all of them are going to be managing it, it prudently. Um, and so this is a risk that, that we take. And it's, uh, I, I still think that we have not seen the worst of this. You and I think I've said to you before, I do expect someday that there will be either a hack or a, a a data leak or something whereby, you know, I should be able to go to a website and type in you and Christy and see everything that you've searched for on Google over the last seven years, um, which is how long Google stores that information. Um, and think about that. That's remarkable because People have searched for many private and personal things, whether it's, you know, illness or medication or fears or personal things going on in their lives. And if you had access to that information, it would be it would be catastrophic, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but that data is there. It's not. A ma- I mean, it's, it's it exists. It's sitting in a database. It's only a matter of making it public. Um, and that's how close we are to something like that. OK, so I think I need a new email address. <laughs> Yes, I do recommend it. I do recommend going with, uh, uh, actually, you know what, Ewan, interestingly, I don't use it, but there is a, a company in Canada called Hushmail, um, and they're based in Canada, and they're renowned kind of worldwide for, for really secure email and aliases and things like that. It's um, it's 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 well regarded. But I have no product endorsements in this podcast, Ewan. I, uh, I, 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 we make nothing off no, of it. We've done a pretty good job at avoiding that, actually. Yeah, exactly. Good. Exactly. <laughs> Um, anyway, that's it on this, Ewan. So uh, let's talk about uh, what we're interested in. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. What have you got, Ewan? Well, Kim, I'm, I'm really, really, really into the new Fleet Foxes record. It's called Shore. Um, I think it's just a fantastic record. It seems to just somehow be more appropriate in, in, in a can, in a pandemic kind of environment, um, where, you know, I'm, I'm indoors a lot more than I might otherwise be, or I'm, you know, isolated from other people more frequently than I might otherwise be. Uh, this is Fleet Foxes is the project of, of Robin Peckinold. Uh, this is the band's fourth album. And, you know, I've been a big, big fan of Fleet Foxes from the beginning. Uh, I think the reason why I wanted to give a shout out to this record is that, you know, I've recommended Fleet Foxes to a number of people in the past. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. It's just a little, eh, it's a little, little too, little too difficult for me. Um, you know, their last record, it was a 2017 album called Crack Up. 
also a fantastic, fantastic record, but a little, little difficult to sort of sit down and try and absorb um, and take in. Sure is not. This is, it's a great record. It flows really, really easily from track to track. And it's one of those albums that you kind of put on, you press play, and then all of a sudden it's over and you're wondering what happened. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of talking kind of a folk rock kind of sound, but even that sort of, that's sort of, um, it doesn't really do the record a great deal of justice, try to put a, put a label on it, uh, you know, just check it out. Uh, and, and let me, let me know what you, what you think. Be curious to get your thoughts. All right. Send us the uh, link to that. I don't know on Spotify or Apple music or whatever it is. Um, it is can... on whatever streaming service. Again, you know, we're not giving shout outs here, Cam, That's or right. uh, any endorsements. So it's uh, whatever streaming service you may happen to to use. Of course, um, I would recommend one thing that um, that Fleet Foxes have been really, really fantastic at doing throughout their catalog is the quality of their production, quality of their arrangements, their mixing is fantastic. So, um, if like me, you have, uh, have a hint, have a penchant for, you know, the, the physical, that physical copy, uh, go and buy the vinyl, buy the vinyl man. And, um, you know, do, do the band a, a solid in that regard. All right. Well then let's link to their, I don't know, their website or something and, you know, but send us something to uh, throw in the show notes. Um, the, I had, uh, two items to mention. One was the article. I, I, we mentioned it off the top about Trump indicating he's not going to leave office if he loses the election. Um, sort of the, the quintessential article on this is by Barton Gelman. I've been a fan of his for many years. He writes for the Atlantic now, um, or he's written for the Atlantic for a while. Um, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a good deep dive into just, you know, what Trump has said and what his actions have been over the years and sort of some of the circumstances that he's put in place, uh, in the lead up to the election coming up. But the one I really wanted to mention, I, you know, I, someone mentioned to me about Wondery, um, several weeks ago, which is a podcast, um, network, uh, in the United States and they have a number of really excellent podcasts. And so I, I finally thought, okay, I'm going to start, you know, listening to some of these because they are well-regarded. Uh, no one recommended this particular one to me, but I gave it a listen because it sounded quite interesting. And the podcast is called Locked Up Abroad. And each episode is a true story, uh, n basically in a narration of what happened. And, you know, I I've been listening to podcasts for a long time. I, like, obviously, Serial was fantastic. S-Town, I mean, This American Life, all of these sort of documentary shows that are done via audio, which are really well done. This was the most harrowing show that I have ever listened to. And at times almost uncomfortable because they're true stories told by the people who lived through it. And they do a little bit of sort of, I don't want to say acting, but there's sort of sound effects in the background that are obviously created, but just sort of meant to give you an idea of what it would have been like. It's not overdone. It's There's not periods where you're listening to acting or anything. It's just sort of subtly in the background. But the stories of either, you know, crossing a border with a lot of cocaine or... Um, you know, there's, there, there's a few in there that I found really difficult to listen to. And the one thing that I've taken out of it is how people's pasts and how their, um, 
either the way they were raised or things that they lacked when they were younger had such an impact on the decisions they made later in life that landed them into so much trouble. Um, and there's a number of examples like that. In one case, a, 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 a young guy whose father had left when he was three and they had no relationship. Um, and after he graduated, you know, his father came back into the picture and said, let me take you on a trip. Like, we'll, we'll go across the Silk Road, you know, from Pakistan into China. And obviously the, the, the kid was excited. Here's his dad, you know, for the first time wanting to spend time. But when he got to Pakistan, he realized his dad was a drug mule and that he was called there to help out with carrying drugs from Pakistan into China. Um, and I, again, it's a harrowing story. Um, and it just, it just sounds too real. So I, I have found these to be excellent, but yeah, brace yourself when you, when you listen to these. Wow. And they're all first person accounts. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Each episode is, is its own story. So it doesn't go beyond. It's just one episode is an entire story. Well, as, as you know, and as I know, you and I have both done our our fair share of traveling abroad in our lives. We have not smuggled drugs. To say that I've yet to be uh, yet to be locked up. Knock knock on wood. May may it stay that way. Yeah. I one other one I should mention. It is a it's a Scottish guy. He was a Scottish chef, and he was uh, in Scotland. I guess his wife his marriage was kind of ending, or he was having a hard time. So he thought he would take a job in Saudi Arabia. And he was head of a catering company there and he was doing quite well. And then one day he realized it was quite easy to make wine. Saudi Arabia is a dry country and he started selling the wine. And of course it started ramping up and he found himself in a world of trouble after a while. And so that's another one that I recommend those two in particular. So, so a Scottish bootlegger in yep. Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia of all places. Oh, wow. anyway, uh, anything else, yeah. Ewan, before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, I think that's it. But, uh, you know, we, we seem to, again, we just seem to fly through everything. That was uh, just seems to and maybe because it's nighttime here, Cam, and it's uh, it's not morning. You know, time always seems to go by a little bit faster at night than it does uh, than it does during the day. That is true. It's uh, it's an overcast day here in Hong Kong. My, my latte has been fantastic, by the way. Um, but I, <laughs> how, how is that even warm? I mean, what is it? You waited like 15 minutes for a latte to show up at your door. How is it? How is it still hot by the time it gets there? Now think about that 15 minutes from Starbucks to my front door. That's marvelous. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's lukewarm now, but I'm almost finished. So it's all right. But I, I'm, I'm now, I'm now contemplating or ordering another one. <laughs> All right. Well, then maybe we should uh, we should wrap this up. <laughs> That's it. You can order another one. Of course, you know, you do live in uh, in downtown Hong Kong. You could, of course, just walk out your door and go pick one up. Right. Yeah, that requires putting pants on. So I'm just going to skip that for now. Shorts, I should say it is 30 degrees here. Okay. Uh, now, nice I mean, now we probably should. Yeah, no, we probably should. Go in a, <laughs> yes, in we're going in unintended direction. Oh, thank you. And we apologize for joining you for you joining us today. Uh, it's been great having you listening to the show. Don't miss a future show and all of the excitement that comes with it. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the account name PR Law Podcast. And don't forget questions. Tag us with your question at the hashtag PRLawPod, and we will answer in a future show. Thank you so much again for joining us. For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. 
This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Cam and Ewan, strong guys.